Hello and welcome to Bridges and Bottlenecks, a new podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice Out Loud in partnership with DNV. DNV's UK Energy Transition Outlook predicts that the UK is not on track to achieve net zero. Technology exists that will be the bridge to take us there, but there are still a number of bottlenecks that stand in the way of progress. This series aims to tackle these challenges and highlight the opportunities in the energy transition. In this episode, we'll be looking at the UK's grid, the challenges it faces as we transition to renewables, and the opportunities of energy storage. I'm Ryan Duff, our Print Features Lead, and joining me in this discussion is Michael Dodd, Business Director for Power Grids in the UK and Ireland for DNV, and Jules Leslie, Head of Networks for National Grid ESO. How are we doing today, guys? Very good, thank you. Yeah, great, thanks, Ryan. Nice to be here. Oh, good, good. Glad, glad we're all all settled in and ready for a nice in-depth chat about uh, about this challenges of the grid. So let's dive straight in. We we hear a lot of chat around uh, around the grid and how it's handling the energy transition, and there are there are challenges in place, but. Let's let's just see what where you guys stand and where that pain points are for National Grid. Let's start with uh, yourself, Michael. So I uh, actually contend what you said at the beginning that lots of people talk about the grid. Uh, I think when we talk about the energy transition, there's lots of focus on lots more renewables. There's lots of focus on the new technologies that are happening and and kind of what's coming in at, at the at the domestic level as well. Um, but in my view. The, the grid and the electric um, the electric grid in particular um, is is almost the forgotten beast that that people don't talk enough about um, it it has to be the facilitator um, and without significant changes to the way the grid's set up the way it's managed the way it's operated the way it's planned um, as our ETO says we're, we're just not going to get to um, the various uh, decarbonisation and, and, and climate change targets that, that have been set so um, I, I think that policymakers, um, industry in general um, should focus a lot more on the challenges that, that are facing the grids not just in the UK but globally um, but I know that for the purposes of today we're, we're focusing on, on UK. And Jules, uh, do, do you agree with that standpoint? More uh, industry attention and uh, government policy to support the grid's journey to net zero? So I think and the grid has been the silent partner. I think that it's been so successful in the last 10 years. If you think about it, in 2013, 66% of all of our energy, electrical energy came from coal. And then last year was less than 1%. And that similar thing has carried on for this year. So we've been on a massive transition that has been enabled by the grid and has connected uh, 22 gigawatts of, of, of wind onto the network, along with a whole bunch of solar and, and distributed energy resources. However, I would agree that we're at an inflection point now with the scale of growth of offshore wind in particular required by 2030 to meet the government ambition. Then there is a huge amount of network infrastructure that's been, that is required to be built, uh, which will affect many uh, regions and uh, and parts of the nation as we sort of transition and we connect all this this great offshore renewable wind resource which is low cost obviously increasing the UK security supply uh, and helping us obviously to decarbonise the electrical system also. Uh, just to kind of build on that uh, Julian and in that the ETO and, and the modelling that, that we've done uh, it, it kind of we see a, a requirement to increase investment and the levels of investment that, that are going into not just transmission but distribution so grids as a whole um, 
and the increase that's that's required is really really significant and kind of we forecast that by 2030 annual expenditure across just the gb network um, is going to hit seven billion a year seven billion pounds a year and by 2050 it could reach 10 billion um and it goes back to my initial point of there needs to be a conversation around how how this is done and and, and how this is delivered uh, more quickly and, and as efficiently as possible. Yeah, and I think we started on that journey with the Holistic Network Design and the NOAA 7A refresh that was published last summer by the ESO, uh, which did uh, give a, a plan to connect 50 gigs of offshore wind by 2030. The investments sort of highlighted in that document sort of reached circa £50 billion by 2030. Uh, but obviously that is only the transmission system, only connecting the very large offshore wind farms as all the distributed energy resources that need connecting and the investments required there, plus the onshore uh, projects also that, that link all this together and collect new nuclear, new onshore wind, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's huge growth and investment required uh, in this sector on a level that we've never seen before, well, not since the 50s and 60s when the grid was first built. So the, the grid, obviously, like we say, plays a massive part in this energy transition and it needs to be there for that investor confidence, right? You know, we hear about offshore wind, but there's, there's a number of other energy generating uh, developments across the UK. That need access to the grid in order to achieve their goals, and you know that market position is driven by speculation sometimes. How important is it for ESO to say we're going to have these big deadlines, these big goals for twenty thirty for industry to to get on board and push that dial for the energy transition? Yeah, so I think the targets are really a useful tool because it galvanises the industry, the transmission owners government and Ofgem to sort of do what's necessary in order to meet those targets. So what we saw earlier in August this year, we had the conclusion of the Transmission Commissioner's report, the Nick Windsor report. We sort of highlighted a whole bunch of recommendations that can get the delivery of large transmission infrastructure down from the 10 to sort of 14 years that it could be today and make sure that you can sort of design, plan, consent and deliver uh, within sort of seven years for new transmission which then starts to bring the timing for building transmission in alignment with the time to develop large-scale renewable generation. Whereas what we've had the problem over the last 10 years is that it takes so long to build new transmission that the new transmission comes much, much later than the renewable generation can actually build their projects. So actually bringing the transmission infrastructure build to be within that seven-year window, then the two things start to align and therefore your crystal ball doesn't need to be quite so good because actually you can see who is developing uh, which projects are developing and therefore you can build the infrastructure, the transmission infrastructure to meet it. And the Ellison our design and then the follow-up exercise that we're about to conclude in the next three or four months is doing just that, is taking that forward look, is thinking strategically around what is required to get the, to the 50 gigs by 2030 and what is required to get the 75, 80 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035 in order to meet not only the sixth carbon project, but also to meet the ambition of operating the GB electricity system 100% zero carbon 100% of the time. I think uh, you're absolutely right, Jules, and I think taking an approach that um, other countries around the world have perhaps more traditionally done is, I'm not going to call it centrally planned, um, but taking um, a more holistic, coordinated approach to, um, to developing transmission and, and distribution systems that align with kind of where the market want to um, develop and when they want to develop 
is is wholly positive. It is, and we've seen developments just in the Prime Minister's speech on oh, a week last Wednesday. Uh, one of the things he mentioned was, uh, he did mention connections and connection reform, but he also mentioned the creation of the Spatial Strategic Energy Plan, uh, which will do just that. It, it brings a bit more of a central planning around all of this, but it means that as we, as we go out to planning or as a de- the delivery partners are going to build the transmission infrastructure goes out to planning, that actually it's against an agreed or endorsed sort of government plan that this is the right energy mix, this is the right sort of locations as to where they're going to be, and therefore this is the infrastructure to connect it all, which has been through a strategic environmental assessment and a habitat regulation assessment also. So actually, rather than the ESO just publishing a line on a map and then expecting others to then go and consent it, actually building that process such that the ESO slash future system operator is much more leading in that way and has actually taken some of those options off the table because it's already done the environmental community and stakeholder engagement. So with with that sort of outlook, with that that model of, like you say, ESO not just dictating and saying, well, this is exactly what we're doing and industry having to sort of work around that, is that collaboration happening and how, how sort of effective have you found negotiating with industry to make sure that we do get the power to where we need it. I mean, we work very collaboratively with, with all of the industry. I mean, at the moment, certainly for offshore wind, the amount of generation that's out there in the transmission entry capacity register where people have made a contractual commitment to build the, this infrastructure, we need all of it. So there is no scope for projects falling by the wayside or for projects being significantly late because we'll miss the 2035 target. So either we need all of it that is currently in the transmission entry capacity register to come forward, or we need more to come in to account for the few we might lose along the way for various uh, reasons that, that would normally happen during that development uh, cycle. But it's a huge collaboration. I mean, all of the processes that we do, the connection reform process that the electricity system operator launched over the summer as a consultation, and the responses that, that we've got back from that is absolutely an industry collaboration and consultation on that process. And I'm sure as we develop the centralised strategic energy plan, then again, that will need to be with collaboration, both with government, Ofgem, and also the industry. We don't want to be a, an organisation that's uh, sat in our ivory tower here in Warwick, being a technocrat, sort of dictating this is what needs to happen. We absolutely need to engage with all relevant stakeholders. We, we have a commitment through the centralised strategic network plan to sort of engage with communities and, and assess the impact on the environment, which is a big shift from where we've been in the past. In the past, We've only based our assessments on economic and efficient, which is what the regulator required us to do. But we're very much shifting away from just that pure economic and efficient perspective and really thinking about the environmental and community impacts also. And there's been a huge shift, Michael, hasn't there, with the ASTI acceleration of strategic transmission investment. So last year, based on the holistic network designer that ESO produced, almost this time last year, actually, Ofgem came out and said the ASTI projects uh, are absolutely critical and we're not going to revisit the needs case for these and, and here's your allowances for up to £20 billion pounds worth of investment, which is a real different signal because before that, even if the needs case was justified, every year we'd go back around and say, well, is the need still justified? Is it still justified? Whereas the ASTI projects, which I say were signalled last year, which are the key sort of backbone or skeleton of the transmission network required for 50 gigs of offshore wind by 2030, 
the regulator gave a, a green light pretty much to the transmission owners to get on and to develop those and bring them to fruition as quickly as possible. So is that, you know, you're speaking about the ASTI process there and at the top of the episode, Michael, you spoke about uh, the, the challenges that the grid faces uh, is a one of um, legislation and government backing. And is that is that a sign that things are moving or is there is there more that needs to be done? It's definitely moving in the right direction, but the commentators and, and analysts look at the speed of, of energy transition, then one of the main bottlenecks, going back to the theme of this, is is the grid. And um, I think that the conversations are now happening. I think that the the way that grids are placed at the centre of the conversation still needs to develop. Um, and um, that's from all policymakers and whichever government's in <laughs> at the time and, and will be in, in the future. But um, it's... Um, Things like the ASTI or processes like um, ASTI do demonstrate that things are moving in the right direction, but I think that there is still conversations and, and acceptance that, that has to kind of has to happen to to accelerate it yet further and and kind of get that wholesale um, acceptance that that it needs to be delivered as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think the next area, so the funding bid has been sort of sorted by the regulator. I think the next key big barrier is, is just that planning and consenting process, which is different in England and Wales to Scotland. So that needs to be addressed also. But then the process that the, the delivery partners that are building these transmission assets, the process by which they need to go through with engagement with the stakeholders and the communities and the local authorities and councillors, etc., that whole process needs to be streamlined in some way. We absolutely need that level of engagement. People need to have a voice and sort of express their views as to how this impacts their local community and the local region. But at the moment, that is an inordinate amount of time, which means that those people in that region live with that uncertainty for much longer, as well as obviously getting their voice heard. So I think, and if you look again at the Nick Windsor report, that is one of the key areas of focus is to look at that sort of planning process in its entirety and see where time can be taken out uh, while still allowing for that real local community and stakeholder engagement in the plans. Just to get to that uh, the point you made there, Jules, about uh, different sorry, different regulations between Scotland and uh, the rest of the UK, how does that affect uh, affect our planning for uh, ESO's perspective? Because obviously there's a massive amount of both onshore and offshore wind developments, uh, renewables and initiatives in in scotland when it comes to uh, power generation for that renew uh, that energy transition when you're setting out your plans or when ESO is setting out plans how do how does that impact change i mean that comes in in many forms i guess in terms of i mean scottish government has been a huge supporter of onshore wind uh, for the last i don't know 10 12 13 years or so so when we're assessing the network plans if there's onshore wind in scotland we give that a high credence that, that is going to come forward Whereas in England and Wales, less so, because as we know, there's almost been a moratorium on onshore wind in England and Wales. So, so from the input data, that really affects our assumptions. In terms then of what the solutions that come forward from the transmission owners deliver, then the transmission owners give us an estimated sort of earliest in-service date. And that takes into account their own particular challenges with the planning, consenting, land acquisition processes. And actually, they're two roughly in terms of timing across England, Wales and Scotland, roughly they're sort of a line. I think the big difference is in Scotland that it can be up for a legal challenge at any step in the way. Whereas in England and Wales, once the um, consent order has been passed by the Secretary of State, then that's it. 
the process is done and it goes in, and it's been approved at that point. So there's just a slight difference, but actually when you look at the big major infrastructure that's been built in the last 20 years or so, again, the timescales in England, Wales and Scotland are roughly aligned anyway, even though it's a different process, but the result is sort of a 10 to, to 12 to 14 year sort of timeline for that. So we, we've touched a, a, a little bit on uh, onshore wind there, and obviously we've been speaking quite a bit on offshore wind, uh, both both major talking points when we're speaking about the grid. But Michael, uh, you and I were chatting just uh, before the show about it's not just wind, right? There's a lot of other technologies, a lot of emerging technologies that need to, that grid connection. Do you want to maybe dive into that a little bit? Yeah, happy to. Um, the queue or, or the, the, the queue for capacity um, covers all technologies. Um, yes, offshore wind is a very large proportion of it just because of, of what the targets are driving. Um, but there are still technologies in there, uh, generation technologies that are critical to future security supply. So there's new large scale kind of more efficient gas plants that are coming onto the system to help support um, not just capacity, but um, also uh, kind of electrical kind of quality and, 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 and the operability of the system. And um, as well as an enormous amount of energy storage projects as well. Um, and all of these, uh, because the, the queue process is, is technology agnostic, they're all subject to the same, the same challenges. Um, where I think it gets um, more interesting and a, a little murkier, if I may say, is at the distribution level, um, because a lot of the capacity that's required um, and the change in, in generation technologies and the additions to generation capacity is actually at the distribution level as opposed to the transmission level. And a lot of the issues that Jules has been talking about and, and some of the, the solutions that um, National Grid ESO are, are bringing forward to manage the queue at the transmission level, they are um, at least um, the same again at the, at, at the distribution level. Um, and um, I think that if we are going to accelerate if we as we've spoken about a lot today um the energy transition then um there needs to be similar focus on accelerating connections at the distribution level as well um in order to facilitate smaller scale um, solar um kind of grid connected batteries smaller scale wind um all of which is is, is absolutely needed um and um also is is probably um, going to see far more development of, of those kind of technologies in England as well, in England and Wales, where there isn't the opportunity to to do, or at the moment anyway, to do larger scale onshore wind and um, and, and other kind of technologies. So um, yes, the, the issues are the same across all technologies. Um, they are all needed in, in some way for um, uh, to to meet the the climate change goals that we have and the, and the various targets that we've uh, that we've been set um, and um, they all need to be considered at the same time. They do indeed. I guess the challenge is though, Michael, as you know, that the queue is hugely oversubscribed. So there's about 75 gigawatts of queued uh, technology at the distribution level and about another 425, 420 gigawatts at the transmission level, all trying to get a connection in the next five to ten years. If we were to do that, then we've exceeded anything and everything required for 2050 and beyond. Um, the challenge that we as the electricity system operator, the transmission owners and the distribution owners have is, well, which of this massive oversubscription, which of those projects are the ones which are real, that have land, they're going to get planning, they're finally going to get FID and supply chain, 
which ones of those are the ones that are going to come forward? And what energy mix does that make? Because if it's all storage that comes forward and it uses a capacity that wind, solar, other technologies uh, would have otherwise used, then we can't meet 2035 because, yes, we could store a load of energy, but there's no energy to store because it's, it's pushed out all of the renewable technologies which is where the, the uh, strategic spatial energy plan starts to come in, I think, to try and work out well, what is that energy mix that, that the government believes is the energy mix required for 2035, and whether it's project by project, but certainly region by region, you can then start to sort of say, well, actually, in the southwest, uh, it's where the solar is greatest, therefore we're going to increase capacity down there by a certain number of gigawatts. Uh, similarly, for onshore wind, you can then start and apportion that. And then storage, if we have a nice sort of even smattering across... GB, uh, thinking about sort of the exporting, the importing constraints, maybe giving a bit of locational flavour to where those go, then you can see actually if we know what is coming forward, we know what is required for 2035, then actually we can start to focus and accelerate those projects which A, are needed by the UK consumer and B, uh, we can facilitate their connection much, much more sooner. The trouble is I think at the moment when you've got this massive sort of five times over subscription in the queue and you're looking at the queue and go, well, but where do I even start? You can't see the wood for the trees. So finding a way to manage that and the queue management clauses that the regulator is currently uh, waiting to decide upon are a key stepping stone in that process whereby if developers are not progressing, then we have the ability to take them out of the queue and allow others that are progressing to sort of come forward in that space. And I think that's that's an important change as well. Um, and many moons ago, having worked in kind of generation development then the the approach to the queue was one that um you could speculatively apply for uh, for connections yes in the hope that you would have a project at some point in the future um at a particular location but it was um exactly what i say it, to some um intents and purposes it, it was uh, it was speculative and um, the way that uh, the ways in which ESO are um, are addressing this, um, and Ofgem currently opining on on changes to be made to to the contractual arrangements to allow ESO to to start sifting through that queue and and either moving people back or um, or kicking people out of the queue where where they're not progressing is um, is an important move. I think the other thing, just going back to what you said earlier on, Jules, about the spatial planning, um, I think as well that is a really important move away from the traditional approach that the UK or the GB um, system has, has approached energy development, which is the market will deliver and the market will be efficient and the market will provide the answer. Um, and I think that that can only take you so far um, and in a certain direction. And there are some really strange signals that over the past kind of five, ten years that have incentivized certain technologies beyond what may be required um, and that that more centrally, spatially planned energy system that, that we're kind of moving towards um, is one that is is far more effective and in the end is probably far more efficient for, for consumers. Yeah, and I think when you look, certainly the big forms of generation, whether it be offshore wind, it's very spatially limited where that can go anyway. So we're working in partnership with the Crown Estates. Your large nuclear machines, there's only a few sites in the UK where they can be located. Also, uh, large storage facilities like using salt caverns or, again, they're very geographic constrained. So people go, oh my goodness, this spatial plan is going to be a massive transformation from where we are today. Which on the one hand, it is because actually we'll get clarity 
But actually, a lot of this generation doesn't have freedom to go wherever it needs to go. The challenge does come with the smaller 50, 100 megawatt hour sort of storage facilities, your onshore wind and solar, which can be obviously much more flexible about where it goes. But if you build a network or a spatial energy plan with the foundation corners of large nuclear, offshore wind, CCOS, hydrogen and hydrogen storage, then actually you start to fix sort of the big sort of corners of what you then have to build a network in order to deliver. And I guess over time, as we iterate and as we evolve, maybe the spatial energy plan goes much more granular, much more detailed. Certainly, I think the first one or so is going to be just let's get the cornerstones in and let's work from that. You know, we, I think uh, storage has been brought up a, a couple of times and we, we said at the top of the episode we'd jump into that. So let's let's maybe just take, take a wee minute to, to discuss the challenges of, uh, of energy storage and how does it play a part in solving this this problem that we've been discussing our way through this morning. Uh, Michael, do you want to maybe start on that? I think we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about storage because there are many different forms of storage and there's different technologies that work over different time frames as well. So we have batteries that work over the kind of the sub-second um, but then only have enough energy to to provide support for kind of single digit or kind of the low double digit hours um, all the way through to long-term seasonal storage um, kind of a, a various different very large technologies um, and of which a lot of that infrastructure is very long-term in um, long-term infrastructure as well um, kind of hydro um, and, uh, and and similar kinds of, of storage, they are assets that are going to be around for the next 100 years, a lot of them. Um, so when we talk about storage, we have to be careful about what technology we're talking about rather than just the, the specific and generic, ter- sorry, the generic term of, of, of storage itself. But um, there has been a huge amount of, of focus on, on battery storage. Um, recently um, probably over the last three to four years um, and DMV we've been strong advocates in battery storage we've seen the benefits it brings to energy systems um, but we have to be careful that we don't saturate the market with storage projects um, in themselves they are useful but the more and more storage you have on the system the more they cannibalize each other's revenue streams the more uh, the less they're required because um there's only so much short um, short-term storage that that is required to operate in the system and, and jules knows far more about that and, and he's able to talk far more about that than i am but um i think personally that um there has to be a, f- a much greater focus on longer term storage um and the technologies that, that provide that um and that will be a key part of our generation and, and, and energy mix um, out into the future as as it changes with lots more um, variable renewable generation um, as um, kind of uh, certain low carbon technologies like I don't know gas fired power station with CCS on it they can only run in certain profiles um, and and don't bring the flexibility that, that, that a normal gas plant provides currently. So storage has um, a very key role to play um, into the future. Um, and I think that the, the various kind of timescales of that storage all have to be addressed and whether policymakers need to look at different ways of incentivizing it if the market and the current met- uh, various methods of, of capacity support that they have um, are, if they're not providing it, then I think they probably need to look at, at possible policy changes to, to promote it in the same way that 
larger scale renewables, for example, is is being supported. And just that longer term storage that you touched on there, you know, we've spoken a little bit throughout this episode about the grid and how that isn't uh, spoken about near enough uh, to solve this problem. Is long term storage spoken about as much as as you'd like or as much as we need need to be speaking about it if it's playing such an integral role to our energy mix moving forward? So, I mean, long-term energy storage, I mean, the government did launch a consultation on that probably two years ago now, actually, about the need for long-duration energy storage, uh, which at the definition at that point was greater than four hours. But as Michael has just said, I mean, my belief is that we need 100 hours, 200 hours, week-long inter-seasonal storage as well. So the thing that keeps me awake for 2035 is not the within-day flexibility we need. I think the two four-hour batteries people's consumer behavior on when they charge their EV and the use of their own sort of batteries and solar in their homes or whatever, I can see all how all that's going to come together. What I can't see yet is when you're on your day three or day four of very little wind and very little solar, and you're in the midst of winter, then where is that energy source going to come from? So it's absolutely something that we need clarity as to what are those technology types out there, what is going to bring them to market in time in order such that they can be built and ready to be operated in what is only just 12 years now ahead of 2035. So yeah, as I say, it's the one thing that keeps me awake at night because I just can't see yet the solution that's going to make that happen. Yeah, and particularly with changes to our gas ne- uh, networks and our, our gas system as well, that inherently traditionally we've we've had um, a lot of energy storage within those gas networks. And if we start to see hydrogen taking a, a much greater share of the energy mix um, is will we lose some of that overall energy system security um, that we've kind of relied on um, in the past from a, a gas system that that carries, as I say, a lot of energy storage inherently within it. So Jules has just shared what keeps him up at night when it comes to the challenges and the struggles that we're facing, both with energy storage and with uh, the grid going forward in the energy transition. But Michael, what's keeping you awake at night on this topic? Crumbs, that's a big question. Um, I think there are challenges that we've not talked about today, um, probably because it's it's outside of of the immediate scope of, of what we're talking about. But when we talk about the scale of investment that's required on the energy, uh, the electricity networks in general, um, I have a question around the deliverability of it all um, and the ability for the network owners to to scale up those investment plans, to scale up the supply chains that are required um, to meet the challenge. Because we, we're in a global competition for um, for resources, not just human, but um, also cables or transformers and um, every bit of that supply chain at the moment is constrained. And the thing that I, I question is whether or not the scale of increase that's required is actually deliverable. And if it's if it is, great. If it's not, what do we have to change in order to get it to be delivered? Um, and there's some really big questions there because you start to kind of rise above just the issues within uh, within the UK, but then you're kind of you set yourself within that kind of global geopolitical kind of uh, landscape as well. Um, so I think that's that's what would keep me awake um, is understanding whether or not and challenging whether or not the scale of of delivery can be can be met. 
So Michael, how do we make sure that we can achieve this building quicker and faster to achieve the demands that the energy transition brings? There is a lot of copper that needs to be put in the ground and in the sea to to meet this challenge. Um, But there are also ways of operating systems, of introducing flexibility markets, for example, that starts to negate the requirement to to just put copper in the ground. Um, And we've seen it kind of start to to be introduced uh, to a greater degree here with the introduction of the uh, kind of demand at a transmission level demand side response uh, markets we're seeing at the distribution level the increased use of of flexibility markets um, both of generation and demand um, to start offsetting the requirement to to build as much as as we need to um i think that's a a really interesting space um and it, again is one that um could benefit from from more attention um, and to try and stimulate the inherent kind of flexibility that is within both demand use um, and uh, or, or demand and and generation as well uh, to to use that greater to in or use that more greatly in in meeting some of the challenges that we've we've talked about today. Um, I'd love to hear what Jules thinks of of that because um, I know that ESO is is doing a lot in that space. Jules, do you want to do you want to maybe share your thoughts on that? So, as an alternative to building transmission infrastructure and distribution infrastructure, obviously there is the opportunity to use markets. Uh, we've used that a lot already, just in terms of things like connect to manage and other ways in which we can get generation connected ahead of the building of the transmission infrastructure. As you look into the future, I think the future relies on flexibility. And today in the control room, we dispatch generation to meet demand. I think in the future, we'll be dispatching demand, i.e. storage and flexibility, to meet the generation, because it's a generation we can no longer control, because that's from the wind and the solar or whatever. So that requires a fundamental shift in how people think about their energy supply. You saw last winter that the electricity system operator, and again for this coming winter, we launched a demand flexibility service. So actually consumers at home, they can reduce their power consumption over the peak time of the day, and they will get rewarded or paid for doing that, which reduces the strain on a national basis of trying to find those megawatts to meet that supply. I think we will look back on last winter in 10 years' time, go, oh, remember that winter of 22, 23, when it was the first time we invited consumers across Great Britain to actively participate in demand response. And when in 2035, everybody is doing it all of the time, probably not even consciously because there'd be a black box somewhere sat in the corner of their house talking to their fridge freezer, their heating system, their electric vehicle, whatever else, and just managing it all, taking signals from the grid or their supplier to make sure that their consumption in the house allows the consumer to live and to function as they would normally do. But actually the power management of that with a battery etc either on their drive or in the home is then just managing sort of what it takes in the grid at that moment in time so flexibility is going to be key and if you think about the storage even the two four hour storage devices they need to be charged they need to discharge and the way they make money is by cycling throughout the day so if you can cycle them so they can export their power during the morning pickup as we all wake up and we have our showers and cook our toast whatever they then recharge again during the morning ready for lunchtime then recharge again in the afternoon ready for the peak. And already you can see that actually the devices that are coming forward onto the market are capable, technically capable, of doing what it is we need them to do. What they need is the very, very clear market signals in order for them to perform in that way. Um, So whether we need to move away from a central 
national single spot price in the market, whether you end up with regional prices or locational marginal pricing. So every node on the network has a different price for every half an hour. These are the big questions that need answering. But it's absolutely critical that some form of market flexibility response is needed uh, in order to make this transition without putting wires absolutely everywhere and using the inherent flexibility that these new products and technologies as they come onto the system, using that flexibility in order to do an economic and efficient transition to this low carbon future. And I think it's important to point out as well that um, we talk about new technologies. None of the technologies that we've talked about today are new. What is new is the way that we're using them and the way that we control them. Um, and it's that that we need to ensure develops as quickly as, as kind of other areas around around the industry and make sure that market signals and price signals are provided so people have the incentive to keep on developing control systems and, and introducing um, kind of, let's call them new technologies, but introducing these technologies into the way that the energy system is, is developed and um, the way that kind of consumers, you, me, industrials, whoever um, use energy and buy and sell energy in the future you know we've uh, we've touched on quite a lot today guys we've we've covered a lot of bases and not a lot of time relatively speaking so let's let's tie this up in a nice neat bow and i want to ask both of you we'll start with michael and then we'll we'll finish up on jules what is your key takeaway from this conversation key takeaway i would say is the direction of travel that we're going in is is right i think the things that we are looking at changing are the right things that should be changed and i think that with some additional impetus from policymakers and from regulators then i think those changes can be made and they will make a difference to the way that the system is is planned um, and separately operated into the future I, I think for me the thing to take away from this conversation is that there is huge change ahead of us uh, we are heading in the right direction i think there's been some very very clear policy shifts in mindset over the last six months or so, sort of accumulating in the Prime Minister's announcement just a week last Wednesday, where it talked around the abolishment of a first come, first served for connections and the creation of this strategic spatial energy plan. That combined with Ofgem's approach to funding of anticipated investment a year ago, we are absolutely heading in the right direction. We just need to not lose faith, keep our confidence and just make sure we see these policy changes through. Then with that commitment, with the stability in the marketplace so people can invest in supply chain and skills and capability, then actually with a following wind, we might just make it. Very good. And with that, the second episode of Bridges and Bottlenecks comes to an end. I'm aware that I didn't speak very much during this episode, but I think that's a credit to Michael and Jules for bringing up some very interesting talking points that I feel like I was very much in the listener's shoes here. I was just sort of along for the ride and it was a very interesting conversation to be a part of. We tackled some big topics within the energy transition today as we keep the ball rolling on this series. If you've enjoyed this episode, keep an eye on your podcast platform of choice as next time we'll be looking into hydrogen and carbon capture utilization and storage. Thank you very much for listening.